HR Tech Weekly, one step closer with Stacy Harris and John Sumser. Hi, Stacy. How are you? Good morning, John. I am doing well. I am joining you from sunny Las Vegas, as it is this time of year. And uh, how about you? How are you doing? You are in California, but you are near where some of the forest fires are at right now, correct? Oh, you know, you look out the window and the sky is this sort of brown color and the smoke is everywhere. Um, it's um, it's it's interesting. The the fires are maybe I, I just looked. They may be six or seven miles away from here. Um, wow. And so it's an interesting time. We've got our bags packed in case we have to evacuate. But they are right now. They are evacuating everybody else to the community center across the street. So. Uh, uh, we'll probably be more likely to be helping people than be in need of help, but we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. And it's always scary, and and we should let our listeners know. I think you said that you have been having some power outages, so if something gets cut off in the middle of it this time, it may not be the the uh, technology. It's very likely to be that you. Oh yeah, you, you, you mean you mean if you don't like what I say and you hang <laughs> up on me, we can blame it on the fire. We can blame it on the fire. That's right. <laughs> if we get into an argument today, John, just watch out. <laughs> there you go. Blame it yeah. on the fire. <laughs> so, well, hopefully you will be staying safe. We will be sending our thoughts for that. And then the, the they can get into the right position to hopefully stop the fire before anybody else in the area, um, both their houses and, and anybody gets hurt in the ensuing um, constant battle that I know you guys fight out there. But, um yeah, so so while you're dealing with that, you're also sort of wrapping up all the stuff from your big report that you guys launched here a few weeks ago. Anything else going on new that, that we haven't talked about that you're finding out from your research or, or things that you've launched in the last couple of weeks? Oh, I think I think things things are kind of calming down. The research is it's it's really interesting. You, you know, we we do vendor neutral research and Vendor neutral research means you can't take on a vendor partner in the execution of the research. We lots of people license it and stuff, but but in the early going, um, it's a self-financed um, research process, and so we rely on the sales of the research to keep the enterprise going. Um, and there's such an extraordinary flood of. Um, vendor-sponsored research out there that that it's difficult to get people's attention. I was talking with somebody who described the amount of research that they go home with once a week as an 18-inch thick stack of paper. Um, you know, so, so if you are a, um, um, uh, a citizen of our industry, the degree to which you have to, to have to stay on top of research to stay ahead is extraordinary. It's just extraordinary. Um, and um, uh, so, so figuring out how to get the word out is part of what we're doing right now. 
it's, it's, a, it's a difficult situation. I know for any of us, I mean, research is, you know, for those of us who it's a passion and who your, your focus is on trying to be as vendor neutral as possible in all factors that you're doing the research, you know, that, that big challenge between how does it get funded, you know, and where does, you know, sort of the messaging come from is always a conversation me and you've had a lot of times on the radio show, right, for the various research groups that we talk about or talk to or who are colleagues in our, in our area. Um, and I think you're right. You know, I used to call it, there was sort of like this, you have to have enough funding in any one area to fund research so that then you can sell research. And it's really hard to get that upfront piece, right? You know, knock on wood, as I always say with CRC, or we've been very blessed here that um, as an organization, they've just invested in this for so long as a part of, of who they are and their DNA now. But I think, you know, for any organization that's getting started, it's a very difficult challenge, right? Um, and you, like many others, have been doing it for many years. And so I think your brand carries over a lot with that. But it, it's also, I think your comment about the, the, the challenge of sort of deciphering what's good research and, you know, the amount of research people get and understanding the difference between what research is saying versus what sort of people are, are sort of how do I best say this? Warping the research to say, right? <laughs> so, because um, there's a lot of people who take the data and use it in different ways. Um, and so, you know, I was talking last night to an absolutely fascinating, fascinating gentleman. He was one of the, uh, it was, he was from a large financial organization that is one of the primary investors in Ceridian, which is why I'm at the um, Las Vegas this week, as I'm at the Ceridian Insights event. But we had managed to get that across from each other at a, a dinner table last night. And he does similarly to what you were just talking about. His job is to just understand all the research about all the organizations that they invest in from a public perspective. And, you know, he had known about the research that I did. And he takes his research and he literally maps it on top of each other to see how similar the trends are and to see how similar, you know, sort of the insights are that he's gathering. And to him, that's probably the only valid way to look at research is to make sure that there's sort of compelling research that says the same thing and that you are getting sort of vendor neutral when you're getting that data. And so it was an interesting process to listen to him talk about how many hours he spends looking at research from that perspective, right? And mapping it against each other. So yeah, I think this is, you know, the market has a lot of noise in it and you have to figure out what the negatives of, of value are for you as a, as a person who's reading the research and, and using it, right? Right, right. Um, I think I think what happens is that the um, the overwhelming volume of information forces people to adopt a point of view that is sort of the least friction point of view, um, and so so like I see I see significant trouble coming in the um, area of of being actually ready to install AI sorts of technology in the workforce. Um, and, and the reason I see a problem coming is that it doesn't appear to me that the people who talk about the skills required to um, uh, deploy AI actually understand what the skills are that are required to deploy AI. Uh, they're, they're, they're removed from it, right? Because the, the the skills that are required to deploy HI amount to being able to manage 
a fairly, mm, in some ways, a fairly ineffective junior employee. This is not, um, it's going to save the day and make you rich and famous and you're never going to have to work hard again. In some ways, work gets harder because you have uh, intelligent assistants who can give you probabilistic information. And so, so your capacity to make decisions becomes the important capability that you need to manage this stuff. And um, that's not what people are saying you need to learn how to do. No, no. <laughs> you know? Yeah. We're, so, and, we're, we're emphasizing, yeah, I think skill areas that have to do with statistics and math and, and analysis, but we're talking about it as if there's a yes or no answer on that conversation, right? And what you're talking about is something that is also good judgment, right? Yeah, the math part's important. I, I, I'm in the middle. I'm taking yet another class. This class is, is requires a, a little bit of calculus to get started. Um couple six or eight hours of classroom time of calculus to get started in this in this how do you deal with um probabilistic information and, and i flunked the first test <laughs> i'm glad it's you and not me <laughs> i just watched my son go through a couple of years of intro to calc and calc and all i can say is that my head was spinning when i was listening to what he was talking about so yeah <laughs> yeah, but now, but now, when 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 I tell people about this, it turns out that I learned the important parts of of the math thing. I just couldn't do the homework, right? The the actual the actual um, details of it, I couldn't get right. But I could get the why do you, why do you look at things this way? How do things work this way? part of it because because it was an actually excellent class and when i went back and took the test again i did fine um uh, but but you have to be willing to endure some uh, it it really even though it's free it's online um, and nobody's looking it still didn't feel good to flunk the test yeah i can imagine But I, but my bet is that you probably did better than a lot of us out here who have um, avoided math at that level. I would say, you know, for a while. And but did so those concepts that you know, went into probabilistic sort of analysis. Did you find that understanding those math equations and those math a sort of underlying um, uh, fundamentals? Was that necessary to get to where they eventually wanted you to get to, from your perspective? Well, I don't, I don't know yet, but I think so. I think so. So this is this is a, a um, right. The the reason that you need to know calculus for this particular class is um, um, that that they're trying to show right, the the basic problem with AI is that is that. As long as what you want is a prediction that the world will be the same yesterday as it is tomorrow, AI is really good at that. It, it is, as I've taken to saying, like hiring the best historian you ever hired. Um, and as long as nothing changes, it's really good at telling you what's going to happen tomorrow. But as soon as something changes, it doesn't do so well. 
And so the question is, how do you account for that? Right? If you've got if you've got an output from an intelligent tool and it says there's an eighty percent likelihood that it's going to be like this tomorrow. And you know that it's generally right unless something's changed. How do you, when you make the decision, how do you make the decision so that you end up with the right decision? Because it's not going to get you 100% of the way there. It's going to get you 80% of the way there. And it might be the 80% that represents 20% of value, or it might be the 80% that represents the bulk of value. You don't really have a good way of knowing that. Uh, And so you need additional concepts for thinking about um, what might happen that the, that the machine can't imagine. Right. And so that's, well, that's and, what and, I, Go ahead. And the other side of this picture that I think that we're forgetting is that when the machine tells you there's an 80% probability of something and you choose to ignore it for one reason or another, because you know of some underlying issues, right. And if, the risk doesn't pan out, something happens. There's also this, you know, a lot of what you're talking about is making decisions that are, that that, that a CEO or a leader would make, right? But if you're someone in a position like HR where those probabilities and, you know, are put in front of you and you make a decision that go against the higher end of the probability, so you take more risk and that risk doesn't pan out, are we at a point in our industry or in our in our space where where people are comfortable saying no to those risk levels, right? Because business leaders can come back now and say, "Hey, this said you had an eighty percent probability. Why didn't you listen to it?" Right? So there's some human elements that are built into this as well, right? Oh, oh, it's it's really interesting. You you know, if you if you first of all. You must never take the recommendation of a machine at face value. It's just a mistake. I agree. Um, I yeah. I agree. Yeah. But now, if you if you don't if if you're just you know sort of Mister Grumpy Pants and you don't ever take the recommendation of the machine, you'll get fired. Um, and <laughs> and if you're unlucky enough, so so probability. Here's probability. There's an 80% chance that it's going to rain today. And there's an 80% chance that it's going to rain each and every one of the days between now and the 1st of November. But if it doesn't rain on any of those days, it doesn't mean there wasn't an 80% chance. Right? a, A probability is not a certainty. And so, so people are going to make decisions that support the machine that are stupid and they're going to make decisions that disagree with the machine that are stupid. Um, and, and, and we don't know how to manage that yet. Yeah, we don't. Right. We just, we, we well, have, we have a one throat to choke view of the world, which is, I don't care what the percentages are, Stacy. you made the decision. It's on you. This was a big part of the conversation this week here at Ceridium because a lot of what's happening, both at Ceridium but with every, you know, organization that you and I have visited in the last couple of months in our travels, everybody's being handed these 
this level of insights or probabilities or data, right, about their organization that is meant to help them make better decisions. And we have this, this ongoing conversation even here, like if you're handing out something like a flight risk number, right, you know, are you educating your audience and are you educating your organization on how they should use it and what it's, you know, possibly could do for the organization? And then are you building in sort of steps so that you're leveraging it in ways that are not going to harm the organization? And I think every vendor is trying to address this in different ways, but they can't stop the desire for that data or, or the fact that, you know, it's part of the, the sort of forward momentum that we're facing right now that everybody wants that data, right? Well, yeah, it's going to be the case that we're just making a shift. It's it's a dramatic shift from what is essentially a 19th century way of managing to a 21st century way of managing, and um, um, it's it's inevitable. It's not um, there's not really choice involved. It's inevitable because we have so many monitoring devices, monitoring so many things that we don't need to wait to the end of the month to see what's going on anymore. And, exactly. and when you change that, you change a lot of things. So, so uh, we should probably get to the news, but, but this is a, this is a pretty interesting rabbit hole here. Um, uh, it turns out that a lot of work has to do with the way that the work is measured. And what we're starting to do is introduce new ways of measuring the work. And that's where the change is, right? The change isn't you don't know how to do your job anymore. The change is you no longer have a monthly cycle to depend on. And what you thought was your job, we've now tracked and figured out with something else, correct? And there are different ways to do it. So, yeah, no, this is – these are – Val- and, and actually, a lot of what we just talked about it, I, it ties in really directly to what's in the news right now. I mean, so just a quick update for everybody, you know, for the event that I've been attending for the last couple of days is Ceridian Insights. Um, so they, um, as many of you know, last year Ceridian went IPO. And so there was sort of a, a quiet zone, for, particularly for the analysts, as to where they were at, what they were doing. Um, and so I've been able to sort of get a bit of an update on where they're at this year and um, what their plans are and how they're going to be moving forward. They had about 2,900 um, people attending the session or attending the conference this week. So we'll, we'll get a little bit of update to that. It's probably worth also noting that it, in case we don't get to everything, um, there's definitely some news this week about what's going on in leadership levels to various organizations. So as many people may or may not know, Oracle co-CEO – uh, Mark Hurd passed away from cancer um, last week, and obviously our thoughts can go out to his family and to his team members, um, but definitely make some, I think, adjustments in thinking about what's going on over at the Oracle environment. We also had leadership changes this week in ServiceNow. ServiceNow announced that they're going to get a new um, CEO, Bill McDermott. Their uh, CEO, John Donahoe, um, is going over to Nike to run Nike. There was a whole bunch of news about Armstrong CEO stepping down and new CEOs and Nike. So there's, there's obviously interesting stuff on the sports level, but for us in the tech space, Bill McDermott came from SAP and was um, one of the driving forces at SAP for multiple years. And now coming over to ServiceNow is a, is a big change. We also have um, going back to SAP veteran enterprise executive, Bob Stutz, for those of you who followed through the SAP story, who was, 
then moved on to Facebook and Salesforce, now coming back to SAP to head up um, their sales approach to things. Um, and we do have some funding going on this week. HR Tech Platform Aspiring Minds might is the word. Uh, the, the rumor is um, get acquired by U.S.-based SHL for around $80 million. And then there's some interesting um, new startups in the flexible career space called Flux Careers, which is raising $1.8 million. So lots of different things going on. Um, do you want to start with Ceridian, John? Or, uh, you, you haven't yeah, heard yeah, much you, from them in a year either, right? Well, you, you know, Ceridian sort of went dark on me leading up to the IPO, and they've been – uh, from an analyst relations perspective, struggling, I think. Um, and um, so so I, I had a very clear picture of what they were doing and where they were going up to about, I don't know, 18 months ago, two years ago. Um, and so it, it sounds like they're coming back out of their um, uh, silent retreat. <laughs> what, yeah. what did you That's learn? Very good way to put it. <laughs> That's a very good way to put it. Um, yeah, and they even had a conversation at this event about how they can do a better job speaking to the analysts and reaching out to the analysts, because many of the people who were there previously in the um, sort of analyst relations role and in the, in, in the sort of marketing function have turned over with the, the new sort of leadership, which happens when you go through these kind of transitions. Um, that was probably the most important thing for me this week was, was getting a chance to get in and see the new leadership in action and getting a chance to get a feel for where their sort of goals and opportunities are. I mean, probably the most important thing is, is their new president, Lee Turner. Now Lee Turner came from multiple years, I think almost 10 years over at SAP herself running um, their various enterprises in the sort of cloud area and a couple others. And so her focus, I think definitely was very clear at this event on the fact that, they are going to invest more in verticalization, which is definitely a model we see coming from the enterprise SAP environment, right? So, so a lot of focus on verticalization and retail, finance services, health and human services and manufacturing. They're going to carve that out and increase their market share, they hope, in the mid-market, which is where Ceridian has done well for, for many, many years. They have a solid, very happy, I would say, in, in, in terms of user satisfaction, vendor satisfaction ratings based. Um, in that, and they've done sort of a slow, I, almost, I always call them sort of like, you could always depend on sort of Ceridian to sort of gain just a little bit every year and what they were offering and what their customers were thinking. Um, so now I think the goal is to, is to grab that market share maybe a little bit faster. Um, in sort of level of priority over the next couple of years, they also expect to grow their enterprise opportunities for organizations over 6,000 employees. So if you know sort of Ceridian has been definitely much more known for, I would sort of mid-market and SMB. So like I sat down for lunch and there was two 800 employee companies that I sat down for lunch with, right, on either side of me. Um, but they're really looking to tackle the enterprise market. Um, and I think that's a lot of what uh, Lee Turner's bringing to the table. Um, they're definitely planning on growing uh, growing globally. You and I had talked about this with their acquisition of their Australian organization they did. The growing global conversation definitely mentioned that they were looking at more mergers and acquisitions, I think. So you will see them probably purchasing some more in that area. But the most important thing about their global growth was their goal to have 20 countries in basically programmed payroll environments. So for those who don't sort of understand payroll, 
most of the larger vendors have chosen to only do six or seven of the big payroll where they've basically programmed a, a in-country payroll for those areas and they're depending on what we would consider payroll aggregators or in-country payrolls to partner with or something like an ADP connection to partner with um, to build out their, their total global payroll. Sounds like Ceridian has plans to compete at probably a pretty good level with ADP with 20 different countries in the next three years for their payroll. So that was that was pretty uh, a big announcement. So yes, yeah, so th there there wasn't a lot of new stuff this week. There was a couple of new announcements about um, launching a Dayforce Intelligence tool, which gets exactly to what you're talking about, John, with how people are being um, shown data and information, and are they ready to acquire it, right? They also had a launch for a Dayforce Hub Portal, which is very similar to what we saw with a couple other organizations this year, which is basically just a personalized portal environment that can be changed and edited by the HR function, which is a big deal for Ceridian because they didn't have as much flexibility in changing the environment, so now they have the ability to change that environment a little bit more for their end users. And probably the most interesting thing that got the most conversation going was the launch of the Dayforce Wallet. So this is a pay-on-demand feature which particularly is interesting because it's a wallet. They are not partnering with a credit card, but it is basically a, a like a credit card tool that they are actually paying directly because they have the, um, as David Austin says, they're, they're using um, their continuous calculation of the Dayforce engine so that every time an employee accesses their funds, they literally get a payment on that day. So they're not loading the money per se like you might see and they're not putting it on a credit card basis there's no fees for the employees and they're not going to charge the companies either for this sounds like all of the funding for this will come out of transactions at the sort of purchase level by the merchants themselves yeah, so yeah, a little hey, bit different yeah, yeah hold on <laughs> i know hold this on. is an area you hold, have hold yeah <laughs> yeah um so <laughs> The way that payroll has traditionally worked is you collect the time and it's, you know, Friday and your company is payday. So you collect the time from last week and it goes to the payroll company on Monday or Tuesday that you get a trial run, everything's happy. And then you have to have the money in the bank so that the payroll company can sweep it out and, and cut the checks. Right. This is the whole thing about how it works is you have to have the money in their bank so they can write the checks. Um, now, this idea that they're going to put the money in the bank for you, I don't believe. Um, and so, so, so what this really means is if you want to offer pay on demand for your employees, you have to put the money in the bank on the day the employee earns the money rather than on payday. And that is a cash flow crunch that requires somebody to finance it. Because because companies don't do that, right? There's there's no there's no company in the world that pays people before they have to. <laughs> you know? I completely get this. We had this conversation. My understanding, and, and again, I, I, I need to get some more clarification on this, but in the conversation I had, you know, last night, in the conversation that we had with it, it sounds like Ceridian's going to finance this. That's what it sounds like. Like, like Cer they're not going to require the Ceridian funds. Ceridian is going to provide the cash flow for 4,000 customers' payroll? Yeah. 
That is an enormous amount of money. That that is an enormous amount of money. I get it. Uh, I completely get it. I'm not exactly sure how this is going to work. I have to get some more details on it. Um, but that is if, you, if you're out what, there listening, if you're out there listening, Serenian, we'd love to hear the story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll get some more details for everyone. But I double checked this like two or three times when I was talking to people at dinner last night. I'm like, are, are you're really going to like you're going to pay them? You're you're going to wait and then you'll wait to get your your money. And that was the answer I got was yes, with um, from the two people who were heading up the program and and from their head of strategy. Now. There is some some expectation that that they will make I think some good financial outcomes from the merchant number so like a like a credit card fee right um, so that seems to be also part of this dialogue um, and they were very adamant that they were try that they were trying to do this as a benefit to the industry because they felt like the 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 things that are happening in the payday loan environment was just nefarious and was causing continuous sort of uh, environments where people were sort of getting into cycles of not being able to pay everything and getting charged extreme amounts for it. Um, so there was a lot of conversation about that, which I know is, is generally a lot of sort of what we get wrapped around these kind of conversations. But yes, that it seems like that from their perspective, because they can do automatic calculations, because they know exactly what the taxes will be, because they know exactly everything is, they feel like they can they can cover that couple of days or week before the payday cycle runs. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's what that's going to look like financially. I don't know how long they'll be able to do that, but they seem to think that they, they've got this financially covered. So yeah, I, we will get more details. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah it's, it, it's an interesting question. And, and my mind is racing yeah. about all of the ways that you could do this. It would be interesting to have them tell us more. So we got time yeah. for one last thing. What's the one last thing? Well, I think, you know, the other things that we probably should mention a little bit is the changes happening with ServiceNow announcing uh, Bill McDermott as their new CEO. Uh, ServiceNow has been on a growth trajectory pretty aggressively over the last couple of years. Primarily, they are a help desk solution for the HR environment. They're a help desk solution for the IT environment first, and HR has been added to that. Um, they've been growing rapidly in that space, you know, both on our survey and everything else. But it looks like their goal is to become a $10 billion company with the help of Bill McDermott, who increased revenues at a pretty exponential, exponential amount over the last several years for SAP. What do you think about this, John? How, how big of a change will this be for ServiceNow? Well, Bill McDermott is um, a, a big deal. Bill McDermott is a serious big deal. And so, so the question is whether or not ServiceNow can carry him. Right, and, and 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 I don't I don't have enough insight to 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 tell you, but but it'd be great, you know, if if ServiceNow became big enough to merit being run by Bill McDermott. Right, it's not now. Bill McDermott just was running yeah. SAP. This is a step down for him, um, and and so. So does he have what it takes to run a smaller company is part of the question. And, and is ServiceNow capable of growing into his leadership is the other side of that question. And, and we'll have to watch and see. Yeah, that's, that's a very good sort of, I think, um, breakdown of sort of how the differences are going to break out in this. Uh, we're going to probably see him, and then we're going to see some changes, I think, in the other organizations who are competing with ServiceNow to see how that 
impacts them as well, right? So I think this is going to be a shakeup for the market because if he tries to make um, grow to a $10 billion company, he's going to have to flush out more of what ServiceNow offers in all functional areas, including HR, which will be a competition then to everybody else in the market. Yep. Every time I've talked to somebody from ServiceNow, I walk away going, this is a remarkable company. Um, and so so there's every reason to think that this that this could work. But a 400, a 400% increase in revenue is a, um, uh, a, a healthy aspiration. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> a healthy aspiration. <laughs> but, but if anybody can do it, I think the market seems to think Bill McDermott can do it. So we'll see if valuations come out about. Um, next week, I'll maybe get a couple more updates from Ceridian as well, because I'll, I'll have another day or so of some of their announcements, so so we'll probably share that. But um, I think that's all we've got time for this week. We have gone through our half hour already, John. Yep. Well, another, another great call, and the smoke is getting thicker here, so I think I'm going to get off and go um, <laughs> if I need to pay attention to something more um, fundamental than, than the HR tech industry. Uh, yeah, we, we will send you good thoughts and hope you stay safe. So. Yeah. Thanks, Stacey. It's another great half hour. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. You've been listening to HR Tech Weekly, One Step Closer with Stacey Harris and John Sumter. And we will see you back here next week. And here are those Irish guys. <laughs>